Hello, everybody. We're going to Yes. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Polydactyl Cat Podcast. Here we are with one polydactyl cat. Yeah, so this is not now the Polydactyl Cat Podcast, but we do have a very special guest with so many toes. I do a lot of pet sitting, and so we often record in, like, houses that aren't either of ours. In case, yeah, we mentioned that last week that we were in somebody else's house, and lest you think we are burglars. Yeah. So we are in a different somebody's house now, which I guess doesn't really help the burglar case, but uh, here we are. We were, Jared was paid to be here (laughs) in order to take care of animals, and I was invited. Yeah. So, stop judging. Okay. (laughs) Welcome to Actually Science. finger you just wagged at the microphone. My God. I, (laughs) you might feel put off because we're attacking you, but welcome (laughs) (laughs) to Science and Podcasts. Brought to you by Science and Pictures Magazine. Welcome to the podcast. We take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. Although today, you're just going to have to bear with us because it is 95 degrees outside. I lose the ability to function at around 76. Yeah, it's hot. So we're a little loose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, it's always been a casual podcast. You're just hanging out with us. Yeah, man. Eating popcorn. Yeah, and Madison even has easy this week because it's my turn to do the paper. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So as always, one of us has brought a recently published piece of peer-reviewed scientific literature. This one was actually like, at the time I picked it, like a week old. A newborn. Mm -hmm. A neonate. A neonate. Yes. So yeah, it's hot out. Um, Oh. But we're here. We have the science. Jared has the science. And what is it? So yeah, I, this paper, this was fucking phenomenal. Um... I, I loved reading every single bit of it, which is honestly rare for even a scientific paper, because I enjoyed even the complicated part, because it was just, like, really amazing to finally get it. Wow, that makes me really excited hearing that from you, because usually the the reason why we're here is to slog through the scientific paper so you don't have to. But it sounds like this one was almost like a walk in the park. Almost, yeah. I think I've only said that about, like, one other paper in this entire podcast, yeah. but this might even go into that category. Uh, so this week, we're going to be talking about, uh, surprise, surprise, <laughs> cough, cough. Wait, do you guys want to guess? Take a moment to guess, um, dear listeners. My guess is spiders or dinosaurs. The second one. Dinosaurs! <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, maybe not the dinosaurs you're thinking of, because these are the extant ones uh, known commonly as birds. All birds are dinosaurs, but not all dinosaurs are birds. Mm-hmm. Just let that sink in for a second. Yep. In specific, we're going to talk about the evolutionary arms race that occurs between birds that trick other species into raising their young. Ooh, like cuckoo birds? Exactly, cuckoo birds. Ah, cool! They're so rude, guys. Wait, is it cuckoo or cuckoo? I think either. Because, like, the, the lowercase u implies, like, a uh. Yeah, but there's tons of situations where a lowercase u is, like, ooh. That's true. The stuff they do is, is like, cuckoo. It is cuckoo. Like a, yeah. Like, like, a, like in like a cool way. Listeners, you tell us. Cuckoo or cuckoo? The first one makes me think of another thing that I'm not going to verbalize. But anyway. Um, oh, cuckold? Yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's where that word comes from. Is it? Yeah. So you're probably right. It's probably cuck. So I literally just watched uh, the Always Sunny episode where, like, everyone was being called a soy boy beta cuck every five minutes. And, like, that is, like, the only thing I can think of when, any, when, <laughs> when, I, when I read cuckoo, when I say it. I just think of, like, D calling Dennis that because he lost his Range Rover. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And like, honestly, cuckoo birds kind of live up to that. <laughs> they do. They are kind of like the gang and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. They make 
what looks like from the outside, like really inconsiderate choices. Evolutionarily, they are some bastards. They are um, some bastards. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this paper was published on April 11th of this year into Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Madison, that is the abbreviation... PNAS. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Give her a second. Uh... It was lead authored by researchers Claire Spottiswood of the University of Cambridge uh, and University of Cape Town, South Africa, where Ooh. the uh, fieldwork took place. Um, and Michael Sorensen of our very own Boston University of uh, Massachusetts, where hey. we are currently residing. Represent! Mm -hmm. you. The paper's title, Genetic Architecture Facilitates Then Constrains Adaptation in a Host-Parasite Co-Evolutionary Arms Race. Mm, not snappy. What would you rename it? Cuckoos be crazy. Mm -hmm. That's better. See, I read that. Um, are we doing the, the, the fun fact corner still? Yeah, I was, I mean, I assumed you had written in a moment. No. Oh! <laughs> so now the fun fact corner. Um, Alright, so this is a fun little part of the podcast um, where we completely take a left turn, don't talk about anything that has to do with the article, and just share a fun fact that we've learned this week. Um, so I follow bugs around in my spare time, uh, because I like to take pictures of them, because, uh, uh, Mac photography is super fun, and when you get a good picture, it's great. Yeah, can confirm, I have followed Jared around while he follows bugs around, and squatted next to a stream and looked at tadpoles. I have so many mosquito bites at all times. I also, okay, this is not a fun fact that I was prepared to tell, but I took a picture of a, a mosquito that had actually drank in from me while I was taking pictures of another insect. Drank in? Took my blood. Drank in? Is that not the right word? It was drank- it drankin' from me. Oh. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See what happens when I go off script. A mosquito drank your blood. And I didn't get a welt from it. But I know that I'm allergic to mosquitoes in general, so I must have learned- I think I learned from that experience that I am not allergic to the entire mosquito family, but certain genre or even maybe certain species inside that family. See, what I learned from it is if you take a picture of the mosquito that drank your blood, you'll be cured. Like witchcraft. But, um, just kidding. <laughs> of course that's not true. <laughs> Thank you for the event. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's my real fun fact? Oh, because I follow bugs around, uh, there's this certain type of bee called, called, uh, Nomada that I've, uh, literally been following around for months because they're so fucking flighty. Um, but I finally found one that was feeding on a flower. That's the right way to say that. Yeah, they, they're bees, so they take nectar from flowers. Feeding off a flower, perhaps? Yes. Um, and I finally got one. So this is slightly adjacent to our paper, because nomada bees are brood parasites. Nomada bees are brood parasites. So they're like cuckoos, but bees. They are called cuckoo bees, as, as their subfamily. So I am naming my next D&D &D character Nomada Cuckoo Bee. <laughs> and you can't stop me. I'm not, nor will I. And she's going to be like a Rita Skeeter type. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. You probably learned this about me uh, by this point, but I think parasites are like really fascinating as an entity of animal. They absolutely are, and as much as I like to throw shade at them, I respect them. I respect the shit out of them. Uh, so nomada bees target other solitary bees. Uh, this is nomada bees look so much like not a bee, even though they share the same family uh, as honeybees, carpenter bees, and bumblebees, which are the most recognizable bees to any person. You know what? I'm going to um, how I'm going to remember that. How nomada bee? Nomad. I'm not a bee. I'm not a bee. <laughs> if I ever write a thing about them, it's going to be like, no, no matter the cost or like something. <laughs> Puns. Yeah. Uh, basically, bee larvae almost never are born with uh, mandibles, but nomada bees are uh, because... Mandibles meaning like... Piercers. Chewing parts. Pinchers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because bees are near unanimously vegetarian. Um, 
at all stages of life. Yeah, we just eat pollen and nectar. Mm-hmm. I haven't even said my fun fact yet. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Go on. No, no. Continue. Anyways, uh, so Andrina uh, bees are, are an- another type of bee. Uh, they're the host of Nomada. Uh, we, we've but, discussed Adrena bees. Oh, we have, because they're yes. better than honeybees. Yes, they are. Yeah. And they raise their children in tiny little holes in trees. They do. Uh, so Nomada will, by uh, smell and sight, seek out those uh, nests mid-construction. And when uh, Andrina are not in the nest, they will hide an egg in each chamber uh, built for the Andrina young. Uh, the Nomada uh, eggs will hatch with big fucking mandibles. Um, and when the nest is sealed up and the mom is no longer there, they will kill the shit out of the larvae. Uh, and have access to the pollen loaf that was provisioned for uh, the Andrina larvae. Oh my god, these Andrina bees are literally just like, they're raising their little family in their little hole in the tree. They baked a nice little pollen loaf for the kids. And then they're like, oh, I thought I only had five, but I guess I have six. And then just a horror movie begins. Mm-hmm. And you know what's even more insane is that the Andrina do not react negatively to Nomada. As the brood parasites are trying to lay the eggs in Andrina's nest, if they find the Andrina, the Andrina don't attack them. But there's something about Nomada, no matter how much they don't look like a fucking bee, uh, they're able to use some sort of chemical trickery to uh, basically make their host react not at all to their presence. They just Mrs. Doubtfire their way in there. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, that's my 17 fun facts. That's crazy. You know, I used to want to be an Andrina bee, but now I'm scared to be. Uh, there are a lot of parasites out there. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of parasites for humans, too, but at least we're Most of so ours, much yeah. bigger than them. Most of ours don't kill us. Yeah. What is my fun fact, you ask? It's kind of gross. Literally, what have I been talking about for five minutes? Larvae demolishing other larvae with their sharp mandibles. What's your fucking fun fact? It's a different genre of gross. Okay, So, you know, dust? Yeah. What do you think most dust is? Human skin particles. Yep, that's my fun fact. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just learned that. M- m- the majority of dust, household dust, is made up of dead skin. Well, the, when you think about it, though, that's a natural consequence of most human households being completely sponged of absolutely everything else. Because when you try to have a completely disinfected home, only the stuff that you drop is left. Um, I think I've said this on a much, much earlier episode, but the International Space Station literally smells like a dirty sock because there's only human-associated microbes on that station. Yep, (laughs) you have told me that. That was your fun fact one week. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, I just don't like, I don't like the thought of looking at, like, you know, a dusty table under a microscope and just seeing, like, flakes of skin. You might even see, like, skin mites if they're still alive. (laughs) Probably! Ew! They have sex on your face. I wonder if most dust mites are skin mites. What do you mean? Because there are dust mites, but since most dust is Well, skin, so, like, in most settings, uh, like, like outside settings, like, mm-hmm. dust is, like, organic debris that's, like, not human. So, like, dust mites have, have evolved to eat dust that's mostly not us, but the ones that, that live in our house will still eat our dust. I wonder if they're... Okay, okay. You know? So, yeah, gross. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hope that was fun for you guys. <laughs> what do you say we get started? Yeah. All right, so back into... Cuckoo birds. Yeah, and right on to the Jargon Junction. Choo-choo! Down to the Jargon Junction! Yeah! Okay. Okay, are you ready to get on down to the Jargon Junction? I am ready to board the train of knowledge. Fantastic. Uh, first up is antagonistic coevolution. Antagonistic coevolution. Okay, so coevolution is when two species evolve alongside each other, like in the same area, mm-hmm. um, and affect each other's evolution. Antagonistic coevolution would be when they're basically, when one of them is attacking or somehow 
disrupting the other for survival, and then the other one disrupts back. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, the evolutionary arms races that we've been talking about in a lot of other episodes. It's yeah. In its core, just like another way of saying mm-hmm. that. Which, by the way, not all evolution works that way. It's not always antagonistic. Exactly. Some co-evolution is super chill, but yeah. But anything that we would call an evolutionary arms race on, on the, this episode, like, they are, those are two entities that are actively competing to make each other extinct. Exactly. Or just, like, you know, exploit the other one while doing no harm to mm-hmm. themselves. Like the Jets and the Sharks. Why did I think you were going to go sports for a second? I don't do that. Never sports. God, always no. Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, just like we talked about in previous episodes, these are situations where the selective forces affecting two species are intertwined, uh, and they repeatedly evolve to get the better of one another. I also think that it's kind of fitting to think of two species in one of those arms races as sort of like antagonists of each other's evolutionary stories. Uh, yeah. Because there's a lot of those to go around. Yeah, um, like a like a really simple like black and white movie villain and hero situation. Exactly. Except both of them think they're the hero. Exactly. Isn't it always that way? It always is. Yeah. Time and time again. Next up, the minor sex chromosome. The minor sex chromosome. I don't know what that is. I know what sex chromosomes are. They're the X and the Y. Yeah. So so let's get even a little bit more broad. Uh, chromosomes are the structures that house our genetic code. Pretty straightforward, I think. That's where the DNA is. Exactly. And like you said, uh, sex chromosomes are the ones that specifically dictate one's biological sex. Note here that biological sex is not synonymous with the human concept of gender, uh, the latter having absolutely nothing to, to do with this present discussion. Yes, thank you for including that. I would also like to inject that there are more than two biological sexes, in case anyone was wondering. Mm-hmm. There are many. Yeah, there's a there's a species of fungus with like 26,000. But I mean even in humans. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yay, the whole world's queer. Okay, continue. <laughs> in most sexually reproducing organisms, you'll see two <laughs> different... Oh my god, Sloan. <laughs> Baby, we can't do this right now. I would like to introduce everyone to Sloan, the labradoodle. I think. The doodle of some sort, <laughs> who really wants to go on a walk in this dreadful heat. Not gonna happen. I'm gonna melt. Sweetheart, you know not what you wish. Exactly. Anyway. In most sexually reproducing organisms, uh, you'll see two different types of sex chromosomes, uh, the exact details of which we really don't need to get bogged down into here, but, like, there's a lot of different organisms, which... I said the one about Uh, 26,000. There's some amphibians with, like, three different ones. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Humans and other mammals uh, have sex chromosomes that we call X and Y. So in our mating system, Y is the minor sex chromosome, which is only inherited from one sex and not the other, uh, with biological females having two Xs. Usually. Yes, thank you. Uh, and males having an uh, one X and one Y. Usually. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that track so far? Yes. Only males inherit and pass a Y chromosome. Yes. Birds and reptiles, uh, reptiles whose sex is not determined by temperature, because there's lots that are. Birds aren't, but there's a, lots of other reptiles. Yeah. So birds uh, are basically the opposite of us. They have a ZW system uh, in which females have that minor sex chromosome. So males are ZZ and females are ZW. Cool. I also am not an expert in genetics. Yeah. So in humans, it's the male that passes the Y chromosome. In birds, it's the female that passes the double W chromosome. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, going to be very important here, uh, especially uh, considering our next term, which is uniparental inheritance. Uniparental inheritance. Okay. So I think that would describe whatever chromosome it is that can only come from one of the parents. Exactly. Nice. Uniparental inheritance occurs when genetic info stored exclusively within the minor sex chromosome of of a species is passed down from parent to offspring. Now, this is super important. 
because the minor sex chromosome only exists in one parent, it doesn't actually have any complementary chromosome on the other parent to mix around its, its DNA with. Yep. As a result, genes stored on that minor sex chromosome are passed down pretty much entirely unaltered, except for any errors that aren't caught when the DNA is being copied. Makes sense. There's no mixy-mixy, so it's more same. Exactly. Um, that can be really, really useful in some situations, uh, but it also completely drastically constricts variety in any way, which might be a problem uh, in some ways as well. I'm being intentionally vague because this is going to come back later. Genetic diversity is going to be very important later. Hold on to that. Okay. Genetic diversity is very important. Why? Because if you don't have it, then you get a bottleneck, which is when the traits get very limited. And then when the environment changes, you die you as a species. Yeah. Um, last up in the jargon junction uh, is something we've actually talked about I've talked about frequently at this point, a brood, a brood parasite or the lifestyle of brood parasitism. A brood parasite is what you were describing with the two different types of bees. It's an animal that deposits its offspring in the care of another species, and often that offspring fucks up the other species. So I'm going to say that we have to use the term care very loosely here. Yeah. Um, because they target the provisions that one mm -hmm. species has provided for, for their, their offspring. Yeah. If they target something else, they're not technically a brood parasite. Uh, so this is a very, very specific lifestyle. All right, cool. So brood parasite, uh, they target the provisions of another species and basically get that other species to do all the parental care for them. They get their babies into that nest and then they skedaddle. And that baby just fucks up the other babies. Bang, bang, boom. boom. Um, I personally think that the coolest examples of this are the cuckoo bees. And there's also cuckoo wasps, actually, which are just as cool. Uh, but the uh, cuckoo birds that they were actually named after, uh, I think it should be the other way around. But to be fair, cuckoo birds are the one that most people know about. Well, people saw them first because they're larger. Exactly. Uh, so the cuckoo birds are what we're going to be talking about here, obviously. Yes, the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs. So that was the jargon junction. I hope you had a good time and you feel ready to dive in to this week's article. So uh, cuckoo birds, uh, which actually aren't all necessarily closely related, despite all sharing that part of their common name, uh, have evolved to exploit the instinctual drive of bird parents to take, to take care of, of their hatchlings. Note how I said hatchlings here and not eggs, which is the most important thing about being a cuckoo. Uh, because no matter how poorly a cuckoo hatchling might resemble its host species, once it hatched, the game is won. This is like a unanimous rule. Uh, the host parent will care for its newly adopted offspring without question, even if that offspring's size exceeds their own. Wow. There, are, there are videos of uh, cuckoos, juveniles, uh, being fed by their parent who is like half the size of them. I have seen some of those videos, and I just always, I just have so much sympathy for the bird parents, because I'm like... You know, they were ready to be a parent, mm -hmm. no matter what it looks like. It also, I think, is one of the things that makes people think that, like, birds aren't as smart as they are, but it's just like they're brain-wired in a different way. Birds are just really good parents, and I respect that about them. Mm -hmm. Stop slandering them. Exactly. Natural selection instead acts to improve the ability of, of host birds to discriminate between their eggs and brood parasite eggs over time and dispose of any imposters before they hatch, uh, because brood parasites are under natural selection to make their eggs live a lot like the eggs of their host. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, I think um, from an evolutionary perspective, it, it makes sense for selection to act on birds' ability to evict eggs and not babies. Because it's easier. You not to mention, boop. once that egg, that, that egg is hatched, they could have invested immense amount of resources into it before they actually realized that that is the parasite. Because baby birds look 
so fucking similar when they hatch. And I would suspect even to a bird that would be the case. Very true. So, like, from a fitness perspective, they don't want to put all those resources into a baby that's not even theirs and then kill it and then realize that they have to make their own brood all over again. It's the same reason the phrase nip it in the bud exists. You Mm want to catch it early so you don't waste any more time on it. Yeah, so I think that's what's happening here. Just uh, Jared's two cents. Yeah. And of course, like I just said, uh, in response, certain cuckoo species have evolved egg patterns that are really, really fucking strikingly similar uh, to those of their hosts. So yeah, there is one of those uh, periods of antagonistic co-evolution happening right here, because neither one wants to uh, lose the upper hand in this fight. And so cuckoos get better and better at mimicking the appearance of host eggs, and the hosts get better and better at identifying and evicting unhatched imposters. Yeah, so it's kind of like what you see in like mimicry with butterflies. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They just, they're, they're in a constant battle to get better and better and better and better. They get more similar and then more different and then more similar. It's like the Adelpha different. butterflies we talked about yeah. like a year ago now. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Very good. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, certain cuckoos have taken egg mimicry to an even further extreme. Uh, these enterprising brood parasites, including the African cuckoo finch, which we'll meet a little bit later, mm-hmm. um, are actually able to mimic the eggs of multiple different host species. Uh, individual host species uh, with astonishing accuracy, as in it's really not often at all that the wrong egg pattern is laid in the wrong nest. We're talking like 2% chance. Wow. And they are a brood parasite to multiple species of bird or no? At once. Wow. Depending on the geographical range and location. That is fascinating. I never thought a bird would be able to, for lack of a better word, choose what pattern their egg has on an individual case-by-case basis. It's fucking insane. Like, how? Are we going to learn how? No. Yeah, we are. We are? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that is so exciting. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, this is this accuracy is incredible, and for over a literal century now, uh, uh, biologists have been trying to figure out um, how such an evolutionary feat is even possible from a genetic standpoint. Yeah, I don't know how it's possible. I'm like literally picturing this bird being like looking at an Easter egg basket and being like, oh yeah, <laughs> I can do that. I'm just like popping out a zigzag striped egg. I'm going to say that is neither wrong or right. Yeah, no, it's just what I have (laughs) in my head. If you needed a visual. Uh, In the years since, two competing hypotheses have arisen to explain this multi-egg mimicry. The first hypothesis requires that the individuals of those cuckoo species be able to recognize members of their own species that were raised by the exact same host species. What? Within that species, there are certain individuals that only mate with uh, parasites that were laid in the same nest of the same host. Oh, I see. So they can recognize what species the the adoptive parent of each other is, and they only choose partners with the same adoptive parent species as themselves. Exactly. And so the DNA for laying an egg of the pattern of that species gets passed on. Yep. Okay, that's, that's a solid hypothesis. It is. Uh, and this scenario, over time, would actually create genetically isolated lines of those brood parasites specialized for their own single host species, and basically able to inherit the copied egg pattern of that host only. Okay, yeah. Um, given enough time, this would pretty much inevitably lead to the evolution of visually cryptic to us, uh, but still distinct cuckoo species, each specializing on parasitizing their own specific host. Yeah. So maybe the African cuckoo finch is actually the African cuckoo finches. Yeah. Or like, I mean, call them like cheeky little subspecies. <laughs> cheeky little subspecies. <laughs> the second hypothesis is a lot cooler. If you liked the cheeky little subspecies hypothesis, you're going to love what's next. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Let's fucking go. 
The second hypothesis requires the use of that uniparental mode of, of inheritance we passed in, in, in that drug injunction. Oh, so this one requires the genetics, the chromosomal mm-hmm. stuff going on. Yep. M's and W's. Your, well, Z's and W's. You know, I just had it sideways. Because your name is Madison? No, I mean, an M is a Z side. No, it's no, not. No, an M is an E sideways. <laughs> <laughs> you learn something new every day. <laughs> Reset. <laughs> okay, so we're talking chromosomes. We're talking WZ. WZ, exactly. In this scenario, the cuckoo persists as a single species with the recipes of all of its host's egg patterns stored in the female-only W chromosome. Oh, interesting. When those female cuckoos hatch, they will imprint on their surrogate parents, as well as the egg pattern that's that's unique to that species. So, passed on in what's equivalent to the Y chromosome. Exactly. Within their Y chromosome is the cookbook for every single egg pattern that, that exists within that species. Okay, and of the cookbook, whoever they see when they open their little bird eyes, that type of parent, that type of egg pattern, they imprint on it, and they're going to look for it when they look for a mate. No, that, <gasps> that's the fun part. They don't have to, because they, they have, have the entire cookbook. They have the entire cookbook. That's what's so cool about genetics, guys. We, this is one of metaphor I like to use for genetics a lot, is what is expressed, the phenotype, what a person looks like, the traits that you see and are in them right now, that is the cover of the book. But their genetic code is the entire encyclopedia inside. It's the tip of the fucking iceberg, man. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Madison took the words out of my mouth. Uh, the female will, will go on to parasitize the same host of the nest that it, it was laid in, but would not be restricted to only mating with males raised by that same host species, like in, in the first hypothesis. Because it would actually be, in this case, pretty kind of disastrous to have that happening because all that variation could potentially lead to eggs that look nothing like that host species. That's very true. And so to have this many hosts at once, they have to have really, really, really reliable egg patterns. Or else they they get addicted. That's some pretty fucking strong selection to keep this happening. In this hypothesis, going back to high school, this would be a W-linked trait. Yeah. Just like there are X-linked traits and Y-linked traits. Oh, good analogy. Yeah. I like that. I've got a cat in my lap. Madison's a cat in And he's purring. <laughs> so, which of these two scenarios is actually playing out with those multi-host cuckoos in the wild? Ooh, place your bets. I think I already made myself clear that my bet is on number two. <laughs> well, let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. So our author's cuckoo of choice was Anomalospiza impervis, or the African cuckoo finch that we briefly mentioned earlier. All right, cool. And can you say the, uh, com- I mean, the Latin name one more time? Anomalospiza impervis, makes use of four different host species, each with varying diversity in the, in the patterning of their own eggs, which I believe reading somewhere else, the more different patterns that that host species has, the longer the cuckoo has been parasitizing them. Because the hosts are under constant selection to make different eggs that that host can't copy. Very cool. So like some of the species literally lay eggs in multiple different types of patterns. Depending on the nest and location. Yeah. Like every egg in the nest is the same. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? Now I do, yeah. Okay, good. In the case of the vast majority of birds, egg pattern genes are not located on that sex chromosome. This would kind of be a first. Would be really cool. Would be cool. <laughs> so yeah, these hosts are the tawny-flanked prinia, uh, that is prinia subflava. Uh, that is a type of uh, uh, old world warbler. I was going to say, that's a bird with a nice brown butt. That's what I get from the name. Really? Tawny-flanked warbler. Oh, I was reading the scientific name. I was like, how are you getting from that? No, no, no. <laughs> I was going by the common name. 
<laughs> Very good. Um, so the Tommy Flying Tapernia has four different egg patterns. Yeah, so we would assume that cuckoos have been parasitizing them for quite a while. Quite a bit, or maybe selection is just stronger for them. Could be. Could be. Um, the other three uh, are all species of grass warbler, or genus Cysticola. Cysticola, I drink mm-hmm. it. We have the red-faced Cysticola with two different egg patterns, and then the croaking and zitting Cysticolas, each with one pattern apiece. <laughs> zitting Zitting Cysticola. <laughs> Zitting Cysticola. It's a fun name. <laughs> the methods employed in this study were for once really rather straightforward. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the hardest part of this entire study was probably locating the host nests they needed that also contained cuckoo eggs. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be a lot in the same area. I actually didn't look up how large the site was, but this was done at a research station in South Africa where they've actually been studying this species of cuckoo in different ways for like years and years and years. Super cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You should go there. You should go to the Cuckoo Lab while I go to the White Shark Lab, and then... We well, I want to go to the White Shark Lab, too. ...have picnics. We'll switch. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Maybe we'll just hit it all together. Yeah, we should, we should wanna, do the White Shark really Lab together. I really want to be alone in another country. Anyway. DNA samples were gathered from those cuckoo eggs, as well as those of the hosts, and this data was compiled and analyzed to produce the following results. I am so ready. Hit me with those results. Without a single exception, speaking literally, it's not easy to do that in science. Whoa, 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 whoa. Without a single... Madison can't even say it. 100%. 100%. That is definitive AF. The DNA fingerprinted cuckoo finches could be placed in two distinct lineages. Cuckoos of the tawny-flanked Prinia and cuckoos of the Cysticola warblers. Two lines, one for one genus, one for the other. Uh, This perfect split was estimated to have occurred a whopping 2.3 million years ago. Okay. To put that into perspective, our species is probably less than half a million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Meaning these finches have been successful multi-genus parasites uh, for multiple times longer than we've even existed as a species. Wow. And the specialization does not stop there. Wow. Oh, we're going to get some cheeky little subspecies. Maybe. <laughs> Within those Prinia and Cysticola lines, the cuckoos have also diverged into even more specific lineages. And not just by host species, but by host egg pattern as well. Wow. So for the the mama bird who can lay different patterns of eggs at different times in her life, we have separate lineages of cuckoos for each pattern that she can lay. Mm-hmm. That is so specific. Yes, it is. That's beyond specific, in fact, in definition. Yes. This is, <laughs> this is precise. It is beyond specific. Yep. Super precise. So the Cysticola line, uh, those are the three species that, that they parasitize, is not so coincidentally a three-way split. Uh, with each one copying the egg pattern or patterns of uh, the host species that it's it's, it's specialized for. So the species of uh, grass warbler that that has two patterns, that lineage of cuckoo also has both of those patterns that it can make. Wow. Wow. Crazy shit. They are so, like, entwined. Mm Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Enmeshed evolutionarily. Mm Mm-hmm. Within the tawny-flanked Prinia line exists two distinct lineages— uh, each each line equipped to copy one of two different egg patterns used by that tawny flanked prinia. Okay, so that's the one that literally has split into two different lineages for each egg pattern. Yep, so one uh, of these two lineages lays eggs with hues of uh, blue to white, and the other one lays uh, eggs of hues of red to white. Because depending on where that tawny flanked prinia is geographically, they're going to be laying different eggs. And geographically, those cuckoos match up exactly with those egg patterns because they're following them around. So they've been doing this same thing in these same places for... 2.3 million years. 2.3 million years. 
Interesting. Um, and here's what's really fun about this, is that every single one of the above patterns uh, had genetic signatures very strongly suggestive of a location within the female-only W chromosome. Wow. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. But what of the possibility of these cuckoo lineages actually representing cryptic and reproductively isolated species? Is that happening? Because technically both could. Are these cheeky little subspecies, or nope. is this the function of the Y chromosome? The authors, well, W. Yeah. <laughs> so the authors tested this by measuring the uh, telltale genetic signs of, of interbreeding between those cuckoo lines, which of course would not be found if that reproductive isolation were in fact occurring. There was interbreeding without exception. There you go. Lots of interbreeding. Across both host species and genus. Yeah, so that's, it's kind of like the bonobos, where it's like, they're distinct groups, but they're all definitely the same species. Mm -hmm. They all be this could really only mean that the maternal inheritance and host imprinting hypothesis is what holds true for what's been playing out in the wild for over two million years now. So that's the second one. Mm -hmm. So with everything we've talked about, it's pretty goddamn clear that African cuckoo finches have been extremely successful thus far with their uniparental inheritance of all of those egg patterns at once, but only using the one they need. Passing um, on the whole cookbook and then picking the right recipe. Mm -hmm. But it does beg the question of how much longer they can make this strategy work to their benefit. Um, because, like we've talked about before, the cuckoo's egg recipes are indeed shielded from that genetic re re recombination because they're placed on, the, on that W chromosome. But this lack of variation could, in certain circumstances, work to their detriment. In fact, one such scenario may very well be playing out as we speak. Variation happening in the host species... That they might not be able to copy. Because that depends on a random genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. They can't choose. No. All right. Or they have to wait, like, for a one-in-a-million chance to, yeah. to uh, be able to choose. So that's actually could be happening right now, and uh, we're going to talk about it. That's so interesting. Okay, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that tawny-flanked prinias uh, fill their nests uh, sometimes with eggs of a third color palette. One oh. with an olive-green hue, uh, completely different from, from the patterns that any of those cuckoos copy. Ha! This egg pattern has actually been noticeably increasing in frequency over the years at that site where this study's fieldwork took place. New egg, who dis? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so with that in mind, that those olive green eggs are actually increasing in frequency, one should pretty much expect at, at this point that natural selection should also be giving those cuckoo finches that olive green color palette as well. But it hasn't. There has not been a single observation of those olive green eggs mimicked by our cuckoo to date. Which would make sense, given what we've just learned. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The reason for this might just be the very adaptation that made African cuckoo finches this successful in the first place. That's the thing about evolution, because the only constant is an ever-changing environment. Even if things have been going really well for your species for a really long time, things change in a way that's not good for you, you could be gone. Exactly. So contrary to, to, to the cuckoo, and actually this is the case for, for most birds, the egg pattern recipes of tawny-flanked prinias are not locked away on, on the minor sex chromosome, which leaves them open to lots and lots and lots of genetic mixing and the evolutionary opportunities that this creates. And the more novel of a pattern that this mixing is able to create in, in practice, the easier it is for host patterns to recognize the eggs of their imposters and quickly dispose of them. More genetic variation equals faster adaptation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It would appear that in the case of their Prinia host, uh, African cuckoo finches may have actually reached an evolutionary dead end, because at, at this point in time, they cannot create those eggs. Basically, rare and random chance mutations are their only slim hope of eventually possibly being able to create a completely different color of egg. Okay, so you know what this reminds me of? What? The legendary movie Holes with Shia LaBeouf. 
How? Um, because <coughs> they're working for generations to try to create this thing that will take the smell away from feet, but they just can't do it. Is that what that movie's about? Well, that's what his family's trying to do. Oh. Yeah, and then he gets sent to the juvenile hole-digging camp. Okay, see, I only focused on the holes of yeah. that story. <laughs> just the hole. So like a man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, cut that, cut that, cut. I'm not going to cut it. I stand by it. I think it's a funny joke. Whew. Anyway, so the happy ending of that story is basically they discover that the onions from the top of that mountain that they discover by total chance and happenstance are the exact right thing to save the family from bankruptcy. In this metaphor, the onion at the top of the mountain is the olive green egg laid by a cuckoo by random chance. Oh, oh they're waiting for it. Okay. Yeah. For most of the movie holes, they don't have the onion. Yeah, and if, if they cannot pull off a miracle, then there may actually be a time uh, that comes soon when they have to abandon Tawny Flank Prenny as a, as a host. Because mm -hmm. if this egg pattern spreads throughout the, the, the entire species, that's not good for the cuckoos. Yeah, they may have to abandon the family business. They might go bankrupt. Yeah, or just, you know, stick it to the warblers. Yeah. Which might happen there, too, because mm -hmm. warbler uh, uh, egg genetics are also probably not locked away in the Y chromosome. Fucking damn it, I said it too. W chromosome. Yeah, so it's interesting because even though the cuckoos are the parasite in this case, which you kind of think is being the antagonist, the warblers and other birds have a distinct advantage in the evolutionary arm race because of genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Now, it did take 2.3 million years for this advantage to finally play out for them. But uh, who's to say that it won't happen faster for the warblers? But they survived all that time. So, they do. you know, sometimes you just got to survive until your random weird mutation aligns with the weird stuff happening in the environment. Yes. Yeah. Stick it out. Do you want to hear my morals of the story? Yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, to sum it all up, uh, this is, to me at least, an absolutely fascinating example of a double-edged genetic sword, as well as how quickly and dramatically the tides can, t which is actually what you were just talking about, uh, how, how dramatically and quickly the tides can turn in an, ev in an evolutionary arms race. Yeah. The African cuckoo finch's risky gamble of bottlenecking its own potential for new egg patterns has worked in its favor for an extraordinarily long time. But it would appear that the variation they've since cut themselves off from is now coming back to bite them in the cloaca. Oh no! That's the ass, guys. That's the multi-purpose bird ass. Uh, yeah, that's it for me. That is a really interesting story from start to finish. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we hear a lot about evolutionary- Thank you, he says, as if he did and wrote the study. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you told it well. Thank you. Yeah. My main takeaway from this is that idea that even if whatever's in your express genetic code is not working out right now. Wait 2.3 million years. Just like stick it out. If you want to reproduce, reproduce anyway. Don't worry about passing something on that you don't like about yourself to a child because it might be the exact thing they need to thrive. Like if your goal is to have a child, then don't worry about what your genetics might do. That's like- Seriously. It could be anything. And even, it's, even if it's the worst case scenario in your mind, it might be the best case scenario for your great, great, great grandchild. That's fair. Reproductive rights for every individual. All right. Super interesting. Thanks for the cook, friend. No, I don't want to have to that. No. Uh-oh.